There was once a guy with a long beard and a love of alcohol called John Berryman. John Berryman once said, Life, friends, is boring. We must not say so. After all, the sky flashes, the great sea yearns, we ourselves flash and yearn, and moreover, my mother told me as a boy, repeatingly, ever to confess you're bored means you have no inner resources. John Berryman, who was born just after the start of the First World War and managed to live until he was 57, had a beard, a love of alcohol, and no off switch. I don't know if you know the writer Olivia Lang, but there's this amazing book of hers called The Trip to Echo Spring. And it's basically, it's a biography of six writers, including Berryman, told through their lives as alcoholics. Sounds really depressing, but it's actually very informative and interesting, and I really recommend it. The stuff on Berryman is eye-opening to say the least. This is um, this is a little section where she talks about his first teaching gig. She says, the workload was heavy and that year he suffered badly from insomnia. He often spent whole nights walking around Detroit, going into university gaunt and smelly to teach what were by all accounts inspired classes in which he held forth on Shakespeare or poetry quoting great chunks by heart. He trembled as he talked and paced the room, his voice getting higher and higher as his excitement grew. When he returned to the apartment he shared with a married couple, he'd frequently faint as soon as he walked through the door. Coming to Wayne had been, he began to think, an insane mistake, and I am paying in health, in temper, in time. He was barely eating and sometimes suffered hallucinations, and yet he refused to stop his frantic program of reading, teaching, and study. A doctor made a tentative diagnosis of epilepsy, while a psychiatrist thought he was neurotic and in imminent danger of complete nervous collapse. In this poem, which is called Dream Song 14, Berryman goes on to say, I conclude now, I have no inner resources because I am heavy bored. People bore me. me. Literature bores me, especially great literature. Henry bores me with his pites and gripes as bad as Achilles. Who loves people and a valiant art, which bores me This is more on Berryman's teaching. In 1954, Berryman was hired to teach a semester of creative writing at the University of Iowa. On his first day, he fell down the stairs of his new apartment, smashing through a glass door and breaking his left wrist. He taught in a sling, inspiring and relentless as ever, despite a gathering depression. The poet Philip Levine, one of his students that year, later wrote an elegy to his former teacher, entitled Mine Own John Berryman, a testament to his decency and commitment to literature. 
He entered the room, this is Levine speaking, he entered the room each night shaking with anticipation and always armed with a pack of note cards which he rarely consulted. Privately he confessed to me that he spent days preparing for these sessions. He went away from them in a state bordering on collapse. No matter what you hear or read about his drinking, his madness, his unreliability as a person, I am here to tell you that in the winter and spring of 1954, living in isolation and loneliness in one of the bleakest towns of our difficult Midwest, John Berryman never failed his obligations as a teacher. There's this thing that comes up a lot, a lot, a lot, in relation to poetry. This idea that poetry's primary function is to provide something I'll loosely call solace. My own description of this podcast used to have something along those lines in it. I think I said something like, we all have that one poem, that one we go to at 3am when we can't sleep, and this podcast is conversations with people about those poems, something like that. I've deleted it. I did not keep a backup. I'm not alone in that kind of description. Poetry Unbound, which is the poetry podcast spin-off of Krista Tippett's On Being, asks us to anchor our lives with poetry. The Slowdown, which is currently hosted by Ada Limon, claims in just one turn of phrase, poetry can anchor us or shift a moment, a day, or even a whole life. And it's not just podcasts that do this. The UK's Poetry Book Society says, We truly believe poetry has the power to transform lives, uplift and inspire. Amanda Gorman's latest poems have been described as a light in a dark time. The writer who called them that said, Gorman knows full well what her art summons her to do to use words as a salve, as a rallying cry, to pull us out of a grief-induced slumber. I conclude now, I have no inner resources, uh, because I am heavy bored. I bring this up not because I can't see that point of view. I completely understand where all these descriptions are coming from. But there's something about it that really riles me. I don't know if it's like that for you, but I just, I read those sentences and something in me just clenches. And I always take that as good information, right? Being riled about something, it tells you something. If you're angry, that's great to know. And when I try to think about why, the first thing that comes to mind is, I don't think poetry wants this. I thought we agreed ages ago that poetry's thing was to make nothing happen, survive in the valley of its making, be where executives would never want to tamper. That always seemed like an excellent place to land. I don't know if I fully understand this impulse to scoop poetry up, take it out of the valley, hold it up and say, could you be my therapist? and my priest and my mom. The sky flashes, the great sea yearns, we ourselves flash and yearn. 
Look, for my money, having an off switch is always a really good idea. I think for me, it's really necessary. And yes, there are totally days when I feel like I really wish I could quote chunks of Shakespeare by heart and that I could just recite poems at will, that I had an encyclopedic knowledge and could teach brilliant classes like it sounds like Berryman did all those years ago. But then there are days when it feels much, much more important to just feel better than I'm feeling. I am looking for solace. And I do go to poetry for that. I could even say I go to poetry to uplift me, to act as a salve, to anchor me. Sure, I could, I could use all those terms. But then there are days when I think literature bores me, especially great literature. These days when I don't want to read all the beautiful books that, that I have so enjoyed finding in secondhand bookshops that are so preciously lined up on my shelf. I want something else. I want an off switch. I want trash. Five, six, seven, eight. Oops, I did it again. <laughs> I played with your heart. You are one of my best friends. Why are you doing this to me? You talk out of both sides of your mouth. Be very careful, because she's not who she says she is. It's my life to burn down. Then destroy it. Why are you watching Bridget Jones? What did I tell you? It feels good in the moment. I know, but it's a bad idea. You get yourself all hopped up on Sex in the City and Bridget Jones and thinking that you need to have some big single experience. I believe this is the same mechanism that means you end up at the KFC drive-through when you're hungover and means that you end up reaching for chocolate when you've had a bad day. It's just immediate soothing, right? Even if it's not the best long-term choice. I think if poetry's number one quality was that it could reliably soothe in that way, if it reliably was inspirational and transformative, then it would probably have a Netflix special. I mean, it would have big chunks of money being thrown at it so that we can have more and more and more of that soothing, inspiring, transformative stuff. And above all, I think if it really was a reliable source of comfort, and if that was its primary purpose, people wouldn't need to say over and over again how soothing and anchoring and inspiring and transformative it is. We wouldn't have people talking in these terms of solace. Because I think the things that are actually soothing, the things that actually provide solace, Often those are things that you don't want to bring up. Often they're things that you don't want to admit to. The TV show that you only watch when nobody's home. The song you only put on when you're alone in the car or your hidden pack of cigarettes. Your off switch. So yes, I do wish I could quote chunks of Shakespeare. I wish I knew at least one classic sonnet off by heart by now. I wish I was the kind of person who always went to poetry first. 
but I'm not. And the main thing I want when I'm in this particular mood isn't inspiration or anchoring or transformation. It's distraction. It's numbness. I want something that can drown out the roar of the mind. And poetry has a tendency to point me back in the direction I'm trying not to go. I'm not interested in valiant art. I'm heavy bored. Henry bores me with his pites and gripes as bad as Achilles. It's distraction, it's numbing. I think it's also just time. It blanks out time. Because a lot of things you can't fix by intervening directly or making good choices or having a hard conversation or even through acts of generosity and kindness. Some things just need time. Even if it's just the three minutes it takes to listen to a Katy Perry song, that's three minutes between wanting to send the text message and deciding not to send the text message. Poetry is not great at this distraction. It is not a great numbing agent. It's more of a clarifying agent. I mean, when it's bad, it feels like frustrating, pointless work. And when it's good, it tends to highlight what you'd rather not see. This is Olivia Lang again on the writing of the dream songs. In 1964, Berryman was hospitalized three times, spilling dream songs all the way. No wonder he described Henry grievingly as losing altitude. No wonder he seemed to be out of everything save whiskey and cigarettes. And yet the good news kept coming, kept somehow failing to plug the gap. On the 27th of April, 77 Dream Songs was published. The reviews weren't as warm as he would have liked, particularly the one from his old friend Lowell. Lowell says, At first the brain aches and freezes at so much darkness, disorder and oddness. But there were critics, and better yet poets, who got what he and Huffy Henry were about. Writing in The Nation, Adrian Rich described it as creepy and scorching, observing, His book owes much of its beauty and flair to a kind of unfakeable courage, which spills out in comedy as well as in rage, in thrusts of tenderness as well as defiance. I published this song in the United States. I may say that the mail was entirely hostile. Life, friends, is boring. We must not say so. After all, the sky flashes, the great sea yearns, we ourselves flash and yearn. Of course, trash will eventually become the thing that makes you feel worse. For example, the other week in the middle of a particularly bad day, I deactivated my Twitter account. I blocked myself from a bunch of news websites because it had become my habit whenever I was online, which if I'm honest, was most hours of most days where it felt like it was, to circle kind of like a plane in a holding pattern from Twitter to The Guardian to The Atlantic to the ABC and back again to Twitter. 
by the way, Lou has just had this poem published called Windows. And I've said to her, I think it might be a bit of a high watermark. And she has this section in it where she says, standing outside Stephen's locked front door, I picture all the boring things I would do in there. Make tea, defrost bread, open my laptop under the pretext of poetry or work, only to scroll news sites and social media and get increasingly depressed. So anytime I opened one of those websites, I'd look for a few minutes and start to feel awful, get increasingly depressed, and then close the tab again with this sense of resolve, like that's enough of that. And then maybe 20, 15, 10 minutes later, I'd open a new tab and decide to check again. Because maybe this time. Because every so often, there would be something worth reading. Or there'd be a note from someone saying something really lovely or funny or insightful. But mainly this was just an easy way to farm out my sanity and self-esteem to yet another external source. Do I feel good today? Do I feel bad? Tell me how to feel. So yes, there comes a point where you have to lift yourself back out and walk away from the trash. An interview I did with Antonia Pont a couple of years ago now has found its way from the podcast into print, which is really amazing to me. I'm really proud of that conversation and I hope it finds a couple more listeners through that. But I was reading back over the transcript and there were so many things she said that jumped out at me again, including this. She says, we'll just do some reading and it will be better than five hours of Netflix and the 60th Uber Eats order. It will be better than that. Sort of show the students, it's like art will hold you. Not productivity as art, but art as in a practice where we're just going to keep writing folks and we'll write a bit shitter than normal. But we'll keep doing that thing. As long as you don't need it to be good, we'll just keep writing and it will hold you and we'll just we'll just do some reading and it, it will be it will be better than five hours of Netflix and some, you know, the sixtieth Uber Eats order. It will be better than that. As as all of that might also be good, but that just the quietness of reading and this sort of um, something about the difficult pleasures that hold us better than the shit we're sold. I've never really been able to make friends with Berryman completely. He is so bombastic and he's always taking up so much space like Whitman. If you're going to read the dream songs, I'd recommend also getting a hold of a book called Olio by Tahimba Jess, which is a response to Berryman. I think it's good to read them together. But that aside, there is... There is one line, one line in all the dream songs when I feel like Berryman gets quiet enough that I can actually hear what he's saying. In Dream Song 36, the protagonist, sometimes the protagonist is called Henry, sometimes he's referred to as Mr. Bones, but his friend says to him, easy, easy, Mr. Bones, I is on your side. When Berryman reads it, I've recently found out, he doesn't say it that way at all. He says it like this. The high ones die, die, they die. You look up and who's there? Easy, easy, Mr. Bones. I is on your side. 
I smell your grief. I send my grief away. I cannot care forever. With them all again and again, I died and cried, and I have to live. I don't think this line is meant to soothe or comfort or anchor or uplift or inspire. I don't think it's meant to have anything to do with mental well-being. God, I hope not. I hope nobody's going to Berryman for that. But for months and months, I had this line, easy, easy, Mr. Bones, eyes on your side. I had that written up on my whiteboard above my desk as a reminder that I didn't have to panic, that nothing was out to get me, that I could stop struggling if I wanted to, that I could be on my own side. As bad as Achilles, who loves people and a valiant art, which bores me and the tranquil hills and gin uh, look like a drag. And somehow a dog has taken itself and its tail considerably away into mountains or sea or sky, leaving behind me, wag. Hit me, baby, one more time.